Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Well, on the morning of the third day after the crucifixion and death of Jesus, uh, two of the disciples of Jesus tapped out. In other words, they quit. It was kind of their first opportunity to quit. If you think about it, Jesus is crucified. He dies on a Friday, and then Saturday is the Jewish Sabbath, and they're good Jews, and they're there in Jerusalem, the city of the Jews. And so Sunday morning was really their first opportunity to leave, and they, they took the opportunity, and they left the city of Jerusalem. They headed toward another town. It's called Emmaus, about seven miles from the city of Jerusalem. So it's about a two-hour walk, and as they walk out of the city of Jerusalem, they leave, and please don't miss this, really, really bitter, hugely bitter. And they're bitter because Jesus is dead. And here's what they all knew. Like everyone in their culture knew this, and these guys knew it, and they hated it. They knew that a dead Messiah was a failed Messiah, and they knew that because other guys had claimed to be the Messiah, and then they died, and then that was it. So what happens when you die? And they died at the hands of the Romans. Jesus had died at the hands of the Romans. So it's over as far as they know. So they quit on the disciples. They quit on Christianity, if that even exists at this point. They quit on Jesus, and they assume that they've left him behind in a grave, and they walk out of the city of Jerusalem. And if you know the story, they're joined by a stranger who is none other than Jesus himself, which I know is hugely confusing, and it sounds incredibly contradictory. And you're going, wait a minute, you just said that Jesus was dead. He's in a grave. How is he now walking with these guys? It doesn't work that way, Tom. Well, not for me. Not for you, but Jesus isn't like us. See, the Bible comes to us, and we as Christians affirm with the whole of our lives, we put everything in this, that Jesus is not like me and he's not like you. He is in the sense that he has real flesh and blood, but he is the creator God who looked down upon a world that we in our selfishness have made a big, giant mess of. And instead of leaving us to the mess that we've created He condescended in love to become one of us in the person of Jesus Christ, to walk among us. And then he laid down his holy, innocent, and perfectly righteous and infinitely valuable life on a Roman cross by his design, according to the plan of God, as a substitute, as a sacrifice to pay the penalty that we owe to God for the mess we've made of ourselves and other people in this world. So he's different. And before they even entered into the city of Jerusalem, he said to his disciples, no doubt including these two guys, hey guys, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go up to Jerusalem and there I'm going to be arrested and falsely charged and tried and convicted of stuff that, you know, I haven't obviously done. They're going to torture me. They're going to beat me. They're going to scourge me. They're going to hand me over to the Romans who are going to execute me and they're going to put me to death, don't miss the language, on a tree. That's the New Testament language. He's crucified on a tree. 
actually matters that it's a tree. But, being God and all, the author of life and everything, so on the morning of the third day, I'm going to come forth from the grave, you know? Here's the problem, though. These guys didn't believe Jesus. The disciples didn't believe Jesus. They didn't understand all of this. Like, they truly didn't get it. Like, they were not camped out at the gravesite selling hot dogs and tickets. This is going to be amazing. You've got to come see this. Hang out with us here. No, no, seriously, just stay a little longer, and Jesus is going to... None of that. These guys are out. So they're walking out of the city, and Jesus, the stranger, who's masked his identity from them in some form, shows up, and and he says to them, can I walk with you? Yes. So now they're walking together, and he says, what are you guys talking about? And they look at him like, how do you not know what we're talking about? Everybody in the whole city of Jerusalem knows what we're talking about. Where have you been? You know, he's like, well, in the tomb. I, I mean, really, like, ironically, he knows more about it than anyone, but nevertheless, where, what are you guys talking about? He's pursuing these guys who have quit on him. Says something, doesn't it? He comes after his lost sheep. And they say, well, we're talking about Jesus and we thought he was the one and he did all of this amazing teaching and he taught like nobody else and he did miracles. Good grief, he walked on water. I mean, how could he not be the one? And yet, nevertheless, the Jews arrested him, falsely charged, tried, accused him and all that stuff. And then they crucified him, the Romans did on Friday. And this was our first chance to get out of town. And we left even though some of the women in our group, you know, went down to the tomb today and and they found the tomb empty, so they say. And there was an angel in the tomb, allegedly at least, big eye roll, you know. And he said that Jesus risen from the dead and then some of our guys Peter and John ran to the tomb and they confirmed that it was it was at least empty except for the grave clothes which is kind of odd but there were no angels and you know what we are descending into madness here and the two of us at least are out so we are leaving and we are leaving hugely bitter because we feel like no we have in fact wasted the last three years of our lives think about that we just took three years and flushed him. We could have been building businesses, we could have been building families, relationships, lives, all kinds of things, and now we have to go back and face the very people in our little town, our family, our friends, everybody we grew up with, who told us that we were crazy, and who we've been trying to convince for three years that Jesus is the one, and have to admit to them that they're right. We've wasted three years of our lives, and not only that, but we have to apologize to the people we actually did convince, and who have also wasted some of their lives. So we're bitter and we're out. That's what made them bitter. What makes you bitter? What is it? I sent an email out a couple of weeks ago. I do that sometimes when I know kind of a topic is coming and I'll send an email to just a group of friends and go, hey, what makes people bitter in this case? That was the question. And I collected up so many things that I'm not going to be able to share, but it was all of it so wonderful and incredibly helpful. But I have a list of things that they came up with, a few of the things in the emails, and I'm just going to read some of them to you because I think you'll be able to resonate with this. Divorce makes us bitter. Death makes us bitter. Betrayal makes us bitter. Rejection by other people makes us bitter. Disappointment with other people makes us bitter. Injustice toward ourselves or other people or in society in general that at least in our opinion goes ignored or unavenged really makes us bitter. Stolen opportunities. Stolen credit or acknowledgement makes us bitter. When evil people prosper, we get bitter. When we or our efforts go unmentioned or unappreciated or frankly are just plain 
not successful. We get bitter focusing on what we don't have, but on what other people do have, like money or health or gifts or ability or children. That's painful. Makes us bitter. Unmet expectations. That is to say, when life doesn't go for you the way that you thought that it would, and you plan for it too, and you've worked so hard so that it might, when it doesn't work out, we get bitter. As I work my way through all of these emails, in fact, one of the emails actually said this, pretty much anything can make us bitter. That's the conclusion. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, it's not the load of life that breaks you down. I want to change it a little bit. It's not the load of life that makes you bitter. So then what is it? It's the way that you carry it. It's the way that you carry it. All right, so then here's our question for the day. How do we learn to carry the load of life in such a way as to avoid the poison of bitterness? Because that is in fact what it is. It is poison, and it's not poison for the people who have made us bitter. It's poison for us, the ones who have been made bitter. So how do we avoid that? And not only that, how do we take the bitterness that we've collected up some cases for decades, you know. We've stored up in our heart. We've, in some cases, treasured up in our heart. How do we release that? How do we lance that? How do we rid ourselves of that? And I think that Jesus gives us somewhat of a clue, actually, in that story as he's walking with these guys because he listens to all of the reasons why their bitterness. It's like he takes the full brunt of it. And then listen to what he says. It's fascinating, and it speaks to our study in the book of Exodus, and I'll explain why. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones. So what is he accusing them? He's accusing them of not having wisdom, of not having understanding. There's something you don't get. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. There is an issue with your faith. But slow of heart to believe what? All that the prophets have spoken. Well, what is he talking about? I mean, like, where is he talking about? Because he's certainly not talking about the New Testament. This is the morning of the resurrection. None of the New Testament, not one word of it has been written yet. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's looking back into this book in which we find the book of Exodus that we've been studying and will continue today. He's saying, look, guys, was it not necessary, he continues, in the Old Testament, including this book of Exodus, that the Christ, that the Messiah, that the one that you're looking for, should in fact suffer these things on the tree of the cross. And then enter into his glory and resurrection. And then we're told that beginning with Moses, who is the author of the book of Exodus that we're studying, and then all of the prophets... Jesus interpreted to these two very bitter men in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, the clear implication being that properly understanding and believing these things about Jesus, his tree, in our behalf, would free them of their bitterness. And the message for us is, well, that's true for us too. No question. Guys, what I want you to see from this passage of Scripture in Exodus that Mo read for us there a moment ago is that the tree of the cross of Jesus takes the bitter waters of our lives and doesn't just make them drinkable. Oh, yeah, I think I can choke this down, you know. Hold my nose. Maybe I can drink this. It makes them sweet. That's different. That's complete and total transformation. So a couple of weeks ago in our study of the book of Exodus, we saw how God brought his people out of Egypt. He's delivered them by the plagues. He's mastered Pharaoh, but he's not done with Pharaoh. So he takes his people and he baits his hook with them. 
He brings them out to the shores of the Red Sea and literally uses them as bait to entice Pharaoh to come out into the wilderness to meet not his people in battle, but to meet the Lord himself in battle one last time. He will master him one final time. And when Pharaoh shows up enraged with all of his armies and chariots and whatever, God parts the waters of the Red Sea and delivers his people who walk through it on dry ground, kind of a dramatic moment, And then he destroys the army of Pharaoh who have in madness followed the people of Israel into the waters by collapsing the waters down on top of them. And then last week, as Ryan brought God's word to us, we looked at the passage of scripture in which we saw that on the safe side of the Red Sea, man, they had like, it had to be one of the top five worship services ever, don't you think? I mean, it's amazing, incredible. Okay, well, today when we pick up in exactly the next verse, (laughs) the enthusiasm has died. And here's why, because there are two million people to say nothing of all of the animals. There's the young, there's the old, there's the sick and infirm as well as the strong. Two million people in a wilderness, which by definition has very little water and they're out of water. That's a little unnerving. And so we read this in Exodus 15, beginning in verse 22. It says, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, which is salty, so you can't fill your canteen with that, okay? And they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went how many days? Three days, that actually matters, into the wilderness, and they found no water. And the reason that matters is because water is the emblem of life itself in the ancient Near East. It's desert there, okay? So to be without water in the desert is figuratively speaking to be dead. You are a walking dead man. I understand you're still walking. I understand you're still talking. And in their case, growing more and more panicky and bitter by the second. But without life, which is water, you're dead. And how long were they dead? Figuratively, of course. Three days. It's curious. And then when they come upon water, it just gets worse, at least initially. Because it says in verse 23 that when they came to Merah, which is a place where there was obviously a a, a fair amount of water, and and the word began to ripple through the camp. You can feel the relief, the enthusiasm, like, oh my goodness, we've been saved. You know, the Lord has led us to the right place. I mean, clearly he has the ability to control water. He just parted the Red Sea. He turned the Nile River into blood. He rained a frozen water in the form of hail down upon the land of Egypt and the plagues. They've witnessed his mastery over such things. He has finally brought them to a place of water. And what do they do? They go rummaging through all their luggage, you know, and they get out like the biggest mug they can find, knocking people out of the way, you know, they go running into the water. But when they gather up the water in their mug and they take a drink of it, what they discover is they can't drink the water because the water of Merah was bitter. It was salty. It's full of minerals. It's like the Red Sea. And therefore it was named Merah, which means literally bitterness, but not just because the water was bitter, but because the bitter water made the people bitter. And I think that's the way it works. Bitter waters make us bitter. The reality is every single one of us is thirsty. In fact, we are insatiably thirsty, and that is by design. And it's not a design flaw. It's not the result of the fall. God didn't go, I know, as a result of their sin, I'll make them insatiably thirsty. No, as a result of our sin, we'll seek to quench our thirst with all the wrong things. He makes us insatiably thirsty because he is an infinite God and only he can satisfy an insatiable thirst, you see? But we don't understand that or we don't believe that or maybe we're just 
don't believe it enough. And so what do we do? We try to satisfy our thirst with other things. You know, we go rummaging through the stuff in our, you know, big luggage bag and we grab our biggest mug and we go running headlong into the pursuit of money. And money is not in and of itself a bad thing. I understand that it's the root of all evil. I'm not disputing that. But that's because of what we do with it. It's because of how we view it, how we trust in it, how we worship it, and all of those other things in and of itself It's a needful thing. It's a helpful thing. It can be a great blessing. But not if you're trying to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul with it. Then it doesn't work. Then it's bitter and it it makes you bitter. You dig your big mug into it. You take a sip and it's just not enough. And so you go rummaging back and you find a bigger mug and you come back, you know? And then that's not enough. And you think, okay, I just need a bigger mug. Give me a barrel, you know? And you're like, not enough. And you don't just spend three years. You spend 63 years and get to the end of your life and go, good grief, I'm still thirsty and what in the heck have I accomplished? The water is bitter and it makes you bitter or maybe love is the thing. You think, I can just, if I can just find the one. And so you find the one, right? And so then you get your mug and you run into marriage with, with that. And marriage too is a tremendous and incredible blessing. I highly recommend it. It's fantastic when done right and when your expectations are right. But if you enter into marriage with the expectation that this person that I'm marrying is going to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul, I'm just going to tell you, you're not being fair to the person that you just married because they're not able to do that. They're not designed to do that. They're not capable of doing that. And so the water that should be sweet of marriage if that's what you're asking it to do, it becomes bitter. And it makes you bitter. Maybe it's having children. Maybe it's seeing your kids grow up and get a job. You know, I mean, right on. That's a good thing. I love that. Maybe it's retirement. Maybe it's getting another job. Maybe it's moving to Fort Lauderdale. Maybe it's moving out of Fort Lauderdale. I know what you're thinking. I just fear that you might have a home somewhere else, but you won't be at home. So just think about that. It's not the answer is the point. It might be a great blessing. But the Bible comes to us with this idea of water and says, look, there's all kinds of water in the world. And and all of them can be wonderful when properly viewed and understood. But the water of the Spirit alone satisfies, guys. Only an infinite God can satisfy our insatiable thirst. And if we look to any other kind of water to do it, what we'll discover is that it's bitter and it will make us bitter. And then here's what bitter people do. Bitter people complain. We just, we do. Jesus comes and he says the most convicting thing. He says, out of the heart, what speaks? It's the mouth, man. So if you want to know if you're bitter, yeah, just look at your words. It's all there, isn't it? And then James comes to us and says, oh, and the most difficult part of your body to control, also the mouth. It's remarkable. And that's what these guys do. Verse 24, it says that the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, no doubt saying, what shall we drink? And the Lord, and now I'm going to read this literally because the ESV translates this very poorly. It says the Lord literally pointed out to him, to Moses, not a log, but a tree. The word is tree. 
And then Moses cut down the tree, which is an emblem of sacrifice and suffering, and he threw it into the bitter water, and the bitter water did not just become drinkable, it became sweet. The lesson being that God's coming and he's saying, there is a tree that makes the unacceptable acceptable. There is a tree that makes the foul and putrid pure and undefiled. There is a tree that takes that which is dead and makes it to come alive. There is a tree that takes bitter waters and doesn't just make them drinkable, but sweet. And what do the people of Israel do? Man, they get their mugs out. They go rushing into that made sweet water and they drink it and they revive. Life is rekindled in them. They are transferred from death or from life to death, you see. I mean, I'm sorry, from death to life. I had it right the first time. They're transferred from death to life on what day? On the third day. It's remarkable. So maybe you're thinking, okay, uh, and now what? So like, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, I mean, I think the point, first of all, is that Jesus is right. When he comes to us and says the whole of the Bible is about him, he's accurate about that. That every tree in the Bible really is just a gesture toward his tree. That is, in fact, the truth. But secondly, and I think more to the point, I think the walk away is that the tree of the cross of Jesus has the power to take the bitter waters of our lives and make them not just drinkable, not just endurable, not just I can you know, hold my nose and grit my teeth and gut my way through this thing, but it can make them sweet. The only question is how, because if I sent you out now, you'd go, well, I don't know what to do with this. So I think it does this in at least two ways. The tree of Jesus makes the bitter waters of our lives sweet, first of all, by calling us to forgiveness. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament that was written on the other side of the tree of the cross of Jesus. In Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 31, he says, let, and the next word actually matters, he says, let all, what? Here it is, bitterness. So there it is. Let all bitterness and all of its siblings, wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Get rid of it along with all malice and instead be kind to one another, tenderhearted doing what? Forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. He's coming and saying, listen, you've got it stored up in here. It's all locked up. Here's a key. It's called forgiveness. Put it in the lock. Turn it. Open it up. Start letting it out. Lance the boil. Get it out of there. It's poison. And you say, yeah, but you still haven't told me how. I'm going to give you three steps toward forgiveness. Very practical. So step number one is fully charge the defendant. And I say that because that's what God has done for us. We're to forgive as God in Christ forgave you. That's what Paul just said, okay. So God did that for us. In other words, he didn't overlook our sin. He didn't minimize our sin. He didn't sweep away our sin. He looked it dead in the face and said, no, 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 here it is. And this is the gravity of it. And it's far more grave than we understand. It's so grave that it took the life of the Son of Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sin. That's the bad news, but the good news is that God so loved us that He willingly gave the life of His Son to forgive us of our sin, to claim us to be His own. And I think we need to do that with others too. We need to not minimize what's happened, what's transpired. We need to not you know, resist to interact with the damage that's actually been done, but instead we need to fully charge 
the defendant and interact with the practical ramifications of whatever it is they've done to us and what that's required of us or what that's denied to us of the loss that's involved as a result of that. So if you have a dad and he left you when you were a kid, you're dealing seriously with that and you're working through, you left me and you know what? This cost me and it cost me in this way and 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 you weren't here for this and you didn't call for that and when I was in crisis and the whole shooting match and counseling is massively helpful with this. Really helpful. Fully charge the defendant. Okay, now it's good that you're seated. Step two, drop all the charges. Just drop it. And you're like, on what basis? Because that's the question. We can at least understand how it is that God can drop the charges against us. Why? Because our debt's been paid. Lord, you have been repaid. I mean, I didn't repay you. I couldn't repay you. Thus my need for Jesus. But nevertheless, Christ suffered what I deserved for me in my place. And he has won my forgiveness. But this person who owes me, and maybe in your case, like literally owes you money or something, hasn't repaid a thing. So now you're telling me drop the charges. I mean, you got paid. I haven't. So what's the deal with that? Well, listen to what else Paul says. Again, on the other side, on our side of the cross, in Romans 12, verse 17, he says, repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. But instead do what? Leave your passions for vengeance to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And you say, well, when will he repay? Because I want him to do it like yesterday. And I I don't know the answer to that. And you say, well, how will he repay? Because I've spent five years thinking about all of the torturous and wonderfully torturous ways that I'd like for him to do it. I don't know the answer to that either. Here's what I do know, that when you trust him to repay, he hands you a key and says, that's another lock on your heart there. Just go ahead and turn the lock on that one. Now open it up. Let the bitterness out. I have this And you do not need to ruminate over this and and go crazy over this. Be frustrated and angry and bitter and I got it. Can you trust me? Do you understand? Do you have faith to believe? So fully charge the defendant, drop all the charges. And then third step is dismiss the case, which is tough because you can forgive, but you can't forget. And you know, chances are you actually run into this person occasionally, maybe every day multiple times. And then you see them or you hear something or you're reminded of something and then it all starts coming back, doesn't it? Man, and you're making your case and you're good at it because you've done had a lot of practice. You're angry again and you're bitter again. Counseling too, I think, is helpful with this. But I think it's a process in which you going through this process, charge the defendant, drop the charges, dismiss the case every day until you don't have to do that anymore until it's authentically gone. So the tree of Jesus makes the bitter waters of our lives sweet, first of all, by calling us to forgiveness, but then secondly, it does that, or it does this by requiring us to submit to the design of God for our lives as opposed to our own design for our own lives. And I mean, we all have a design for our lives. We have plans. 
We have goals. We have purposes. We have things that we want to see happen. All this stuff that we're working on, we've got all of this stuff. And you know, the design of God for our lives, oh, newsflash, he has one too, doesn't always line up exactly with our design, does it? And sometimes that's a wonderful thing. Like, I mean, I look at my wife, I look at our kids, and I think, good grief, this is way beyond anything I could have asked or imagined. Like, it's so much better than I thought it could ever be. And I'm real happy, not bitter. (laughs) But there are those times when it goes the other way. So what do you do then? Because here are your choices. You can either trust that your unmet expectation, which has caused you grief, it has required that you sustain a loss. You can trust that it has come to you from the hand of a good God whose design is wiser and far greater than you know. Or you can reject it. You can resent it. You can receive that and just grow bitter. One of the people that was involved in this email chain that I had going on bitterness, I sent this statement and it, it's, it was so good uh, that one of the other people said, you should just read that and then close in prayer. You know, like the whole sermon. That's it. Um, and so I want to read it to you and I want you to follow its logic. It actually starts with sort of a thesis statement, but it's not like a long-term paper. It's a paragraph, so stay. He says this, he says, bitterness is lazy grief. And now he's going to develop this thought. He says, I had a counselor say that to me once and it instantly broke through that passive victim mentality that we all default to if we're not careful. Bitterness, in my case, he says, is typically developed after long, wearisome seasons of fighting to do the right thing, but being repeatedly disappointed by the outcomes. As we grieve the loss, because it's disappointment or whatever, as we grieve, it's as if bitterness is the disfigured, sinful alternative to godly acceptance. One says, I accept this hardship as good from the hand of the Lord, and the other scoffs at every stage along the cycle of grief, saying there is no meaning to be found in this pain. He says, we will find our equilibrium in one or the other, depending on which voice is allowed to take root in our heart. The I accept this as good from the hand of the Lord perspective demands the hard, persevering work of faith. But bitterness is lazy. So it gives up hope of reaching acceptance and settles instead for a sort of pained indifference. Guys, it's not the load of life that breaks you down or makes you bitter. It's the way that you, the way that I carry it. So how do we carry it in such a way as to avoid the poison of bitterness? Because man, it's, it causes a great sickness. How do we get rid of the bitterness that we've collected up and stored up and even treasured up in some cases? We hold on to it, that we might use it against other people. What do we do with it? We carry it to the tree of the cross of Jesus Christ and then deposit there every single day all that bitterness We leave it at the feet of the one who suffered and died that we might be free of it by calling us to forgiveness and by calling us to submit to the good design of God's God's will for our lives. Even when we don't understand how it's good. Even when it doesn't make sense. So I close with this. Who do you need to forgive? And where do you simply need to trust God's design 
for your life. Because it seems to me that at the very least, the tree of Jesus calls us to do that. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for uh, the trees of the Bible. We thank you for all of the, the different ones that prefigure the ultimate tree of the cross of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for all the things that we learn about the cross from all the other trees that we find, including this one we looked at today. We thank you that there is one who has the power by his tree to make the bitter not just endurable, but sweet. And Lord, we entrust ourselves to him. God, give us understanding. Give us wisdom. Let us not be slow of heart to believe, but quick and ready and eager. Give us faith by which to trust you when you come to us and offer us freedom and faith by which to pursue it with all that we have. Give us good friends to walk with us in that journey and good counsel and counseling if that would be helpful. Lord, I pray that you would work in our heart to unlock the locks on our heart that have stored up that which is bitter, that we might release it and be free. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.